Well, probably if I could ask any one of you to come up here and review the book of Ruth for me, I'm sure that any one of you could do it, right? So we go, we start out in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and that's the story where we find ourselves in this book, in this context, these people, uh, these these people that were seeking to be faithful to God in their lives, and uh, they find themselves at a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so over and over again, as we've heard that, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I think about it, it just makes me realize that, that we're living in the same exact time that, that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were living in. Um, it's a time when people would just do what they think is right. And it's not a big deal, right? You just do whatever feels right, and it just makes sense. And yet, there's God's Word that He speaks to us. And we, we recognize that what we're going through right now in our world and our culture is nothing different than, every peop- than people haven't been facing for thousands of years. Uh, there's God's Word that says, this is how I've called you to be. Here's how you can find life and hope and salvation. And this is in light of who I am and what I've done. This is how you are to live. And yet the world around us says, well, this, you just figure it out on your own. And you come up with the solutions. And if people don't like your solutions, then that's their problem. Um, and so we're living in the same kind of time that, that these folks are living in. And there's also a famine in the land. There's a time when there's great struggle. There's heartbreak and heartache. And so Elimelech uh, says, you know what, I'm going to leave the promised land, the land of promise, because in Bethlehem, the house of bread, there is no bread, and I'm going to go to the fields of Moab. I'm going to walk in disobedience, and I'm going to live among a people that God uh, was not pleased with. I'm going to live among a people that God does not want me to live with. I'm going to allow my sons to intermarry with a people that God does not want me to allow my sons to intermarry with. And so there in the land of Moab, Moab, Boaz and, excuse me, uh, Elimelech and his two sons both die, of course, and then there's three widows. And then we see this wonderful act of kindness. And, and it just strikes me so much, I, don't want, I have no idea, how is it that Ruth understands in, in chapter 1, she says, your God will be my God. I want your God to be my God. You know, she really didn't see anything that faithful from her own mother-in-law to demonstrate that, her, that Naomi's God would have been any different than the God that she was worshiping in Moab. And yet, she sees that somehow. And so she extends this wonderful kindness to her mother-in-law. She goes and cares for her. And then in chapter 2, we saw that, that Ruth was, was taking responsibility for her mother-in-law and providing for her and working and doing what she needed to do to care for her mother-in-law. And then because of that, she encounters Boaz. And remember, she just happens to be in the field. We see God's sovereign hand, His providence, uh, working to accomplish His purposes that He puts uh, Ruth, right in just the right spot to meet this person. And Boaz extends her a great kindness. Not only does he give her lots of barley and lots of grain, but he says, don't go with, his, with the, in the other fields. And he tells his workers to not bother Ruth and to allow her to work. He extends her this great kindness, even though she is a Moabite, even though she is a foreigner, she is an outsider. And so then Naomi comes up with this great plan because she recognizes that, that Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. He is a near redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And she says, go down to the threshing floor and lay down at his feet. And he will redeem you. And so Ruth, as another act of kindness, says to her mother-in-law, whatever you say, I will do. And so she does that. And then Boaz says, yes, I want to redeem you. But last week we learned that there was another redeemer that was closer. There was one that, that had the option. And we learned that there was a piece of land that was... was it was a part of the deal which made it more attractive for the other redeemer to say yes I want to have this land but when the other redeemer who we never know what his name is when he protects his own name he loses the opportunity to, to be obedient to God's word and to walk in the truth and to redeem Ruth and Naomi and by giving up his freedom to uh, by, by he protects his own name he loses his name in history 
in Boaz by giving up his own name and being willing to say, yes, I'm willing to lose my name so that these people can be provided for. He ends up gaining his name and he's the person that we know of. He's the person that's been made famous. Maybe not famous in our culture today because how many of you knew Boaz before we began this study, but famous in the Word of God. Famous for generations and generations. I met a man last week, his last name was Boaz, right here in our church. And so here we are at the story. And so all we have left, really, is just these last few verses about Naomi. So let's read uh, chapter 4, verse 13. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Well, before I get too far into the text, I just wanted to you know, kind of make a note here. You know, we're in the season of graduations, right? Uh, we've had some graduations last week, and, and the, the colleges are kind of earlier, and then there's high schools, and, and we had folks that have graduated from eighth grade, and they're going on to, to other schools. You know, Woolen has graduates. Um, some people are graduating from graduate school, right? That's a school for graduates. A graduate school is a school for graduates. Um, and so what is a graduation? Well, it's, it's when you, uh, one definition in this context is when you receive uh, an award or an academic diploma. You, you've gone to a higher grade, essentially. You've received a higher degree. You've moved up another level. You've gone up one degree. Well, graduation, as exciting as it is, is very different, though, from a transformation. Because a graduation is, is you getting a little bit more educated, or you having more understanding, or you getting better. But a transformation doesn't mark a difference in degree. It marks a difference in kind. You become something else. You are transformed. So what happens when something is transformed? It's maybe disassembled or there's a chemical or a physical reaction of some kind. So, for example, take the ingredients of a cake. You know, there's uh, sugar and flour and egg and maybe some other ingredients in there. And you take those things and you mix them together and you put them in the oven. And when, they have this, uh, when they're exposed to the heat, it becomes something else. It's a transformation that takes place, a delicious transformation. It's still all the same ingredients, but you can't take it back to what it was before. You couldn't separate those things out and make them like they were. It's been transformed. Even though it has all the same components, all the same things, it's something completely different. And that's what we see in this story today, is that there's a transformation that has taken place in the lives of the participants. We see in this first verse that, that, that the Lord gives to Ruth a son. So, Boaz and Ruth are now married and the Lord allows her to conceive and through the providence of God, a Moabite woman bears a child who can carry on the name of Elimelech. And just as a parenthesis here, this short statement reminds us that, that children are indeed a gift from the Lord. God is the one who appoints a, a person to be born. But think about this transformation that's happened in Ruth's life since she met Naomi. She got married her husband died. She went from being a person in the majority of her culture. She was a Moabite living among Moabites to become a minority. She became a Moabite among all the Israelites. She was worshiping pagan gods in her homeland. But now she was a part of God's covenant family. Through the providence of God, she experiences the kindness of the God of the Bible. You know, the Lord used... Boaz in her life to bring wholeness, a purpose, and provision. She has now become a mother. She has a child. And that child will go on to care for her and to provide for her. 
She's no longer a Moabite woman. And how many times in the text does it say Ruth the Moabite, emphasizing to us this is how she is defined. Her 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 uh, her personhood is defined by her race. But then later on, she now is not defined so much by being a Moabite. She is defined by the fact that she has been given a son. She is married to Boaz. And she's also been defined by the character that she has expressed because she has worked. In the, in the text it says that, Boaz says, the people have seen all that you are and all that you do. So she has the social status and she also has the status that's afforded to her because of her character. She has been transformed. She extends kindness to Naomi and serves faithfully. She sees the blessing of the Lord, all because God has been working in her life. We even see there's a bit of a trans- transformation that happens in Boaz's life. And at the beginning of the story, we learn that he is a man of standing, a worthy man. He's a man of character in a time when there aren't that many men of character. But he's really almost uh, reserved and shy. He probably knew that Naomi was a, was a near relative and that he could have acted on behalf of Ruth to marry her, but he didn't. He hesitated for whatever reason, and we don't really know why. He didn't actually take any action until Ruth came to him at the threshing floor. And so he becomes, even though he's a hesitant redeemer, he becomes an assertive but humble and sacrificing husband. We see him last week at the city gate, how he takes action, and he becomes the man that God has called him to be. And he goes and presents, gets before the elders and the other redeemer. He takes this action on behalf of, of, of uh, Naomi and Ruth. And now then we see this transformation that happens also in Naomi. In verse 14, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. You know, we don't actually hear Naomi speaking in the text, but the other women are, are speaking. And they are acknowledging, they are recognizing that Naomi has been blessed by this Redeemer. This little boy who is able to carry on the name of she and her husband. She's, he is assuring their status in the community. And he is assuring their status in history. And they even ask, they say, will allow his name to be renowned in all of history. And we contrast how Naomi now has essentially been made full. We contrast that with what she says about herself in chapter 1. She is, the Lord has brought me away empty. And now she has been full. She has been transformed. She is complete. You know, she sees this child as a, as a true blessing. And that's what children, grandchildren really are. We think about the last few weeks here at our church. I've, I've done uh, four funerals in, uh, in two weeks. And, you know, one of the opportunities that I get when I minister to families in that situation in their lives is I have a lot of interaction with with the, uh, the children and the grandchildren. And, and these folks, these funerals, were people that were older. And so I, I met a lot of grandchildren. And it's very touching to me to see the relationship between grandparents and grandchildren. And I see, we saw a little bit of that this morning as Dakota ran up and said to Grammy, you know, she wanted to show that picture. Like she had been working on this little drawing. It's like the most, the person I want to see this the most is up there. So that's where she is. I'm going up there to give it to her. You know? 
and there's a special special relationship. You know, I think about when my when my children uh, see Gibby and Pop Pop or Nana and Papa or Pops and Paulette, they they love being with them. And then as you as you get older, you know, I just saw this really firsthand um, even uh, this week, having a conversation with a person about their their grandfather, Bill Mathis, who who died. I got to talk with his granddaughters, and they just they loved him. He was just a, a very uh, faithful and godly man, and they and they loved him. It's very, very valuable, very important in our lives, our grandparents. And though we may not have too many grandparents in the room uh, right now, but, you know, think about this. You know, we have an opportunity as, as grandparents to continue to invest and to, to pour into and to love our, our grandchildren. We have an opportunity to do that. And, you know, we live in a culture that's busy and people have all kinds of activities and there's games and there's stuff going on. But if you're a grandparent, I mean, just stop and make a call and say, come and visit, or I'm going to come and see you, and take time to, to make those connections. Because let me tell you, when, when your grandchildren are at your funeral, they're going to remember that you took initiative. They're going to remember that you wanted to be with them. That you're going to remember that you, they cared, that you cared. And your wisdom and your life is really important and significant. And same, you know, the, the, the reverse goes the same way. You know, to take time to, to spend with your grandparents. And to listen to their stories, you know, we thankfully last uh, last year we we started writing articles about some of our folks in our church in the wood chips part of the newsletter. And one of the people that we wrote about was Bill Mathis in October, because I found that when I do this uh, do a funeral for somebody, then I learn all about their life and all about the things that they did and where they went and who they were involved with. And so it was tragic to me to say, "There's these great stories that are sitting right here in our congregation, and we don't even know who they are." So let's start telling some of those stories in advance. And so we got to hear that Bill Mathis went to Texas Tech and that he was a pilot, he was a salesman, a hunter, and, and, and a fisherman. And just a, you, you learn about these things. And maybe your grandparents, like mine, are no longer living, but we have opportunity to, to form new grandparental relationships in this congregation. And it just be, means initiating uh, with people and, and, and connecting with them. And so for Naomi, her grandson, would, it says, would be a nourisher of life. I mean, think about that, a nourisher of life. I mean, she had gone from being um, disobedient and, and wayward to becoming embittered and hardened toward God. And, and yet now this child, this, this little baby, is bringing life to her, is speaking to her heart and, and loving her. She's been transformed by this little boy. I mean, she now has, the, has hope and the promise of a future because this little boy and his family, they can care for her and they can also care for Ruth. And so she has experienced redemption because of this, this little baby. This story sound familiar? Redemption through a baby. Well, let's just read the rest of these verses because, you know, they're in there. We might as well read them, right? Um, they named him Obed, verse 17. And this is genealogy stuff, you know. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Huh. You know, so often we come to a genealogy and we just kind of read through them. I don't know, the names are kind of confusing. Most of the time you're not familiar with them. And you just kind of breeze through this this, uh, this lineage, this genealogy, and you think, well, really, what's the point of having this in there? We don't know most of these people. You know, we recognize, of course, um, David is familiar, maybe Jesse, 
Um, we just learned who Obed was, and we know who Boaz was. Um, but what's the deal? Why is this even included in the story? Well, the reason uh, these verses are in the story is because I think they're probably the most important verses in the whole story. Three tiny little pages and really one tiny little verse reveals to us uh, that Obed, who is Naomi's grandson, is given to her by Boaz and Ruth, the Moabite, remember, is the grandfather of David. Obed is the grandfather of David. That makes Ruth, the Moabite, the great-grandmother of David. Now, who is David? David is the king. He's the most important king in the history of the nation of Israel. He was a great man of faith who God used to build his kingdom more than any other king. He led the people in overcoming their enemies and expanding their inheritance and most of all, of worshiping their God. He wrote songs for the Levites to sing and devised musical instruments for them to play. Our our next sermon series, all the rest of the summer, we're going to be focusing on the Psalms and many of those Psalms were written by who? King David. King David, the worshiper. He spent a lifetime gathering wealth for the building of the temple and God gave him the plans so that Solomon, his son, could do the job. So whether David in his hand had a sling or a sword or a harp or a hymnal, David was a great servant of God who brought untold blessings to the nation of Israel. Do you think these three pages are insignificant? Are they not important for us to understand and to know? You see, in Second Samuel verse 7, the Lord says to David, to the prophet Nathan, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What does that mean? Your throne shall be established forever. It means that not only had God chosen David to be king, but that the great king, the Messiah, would come from this line, the Davidic line, the kingly line of David. Indeed, in the New Testament, where we are introduced to Jesus Christ in the genealogy of Matthew, he is described as the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. And Ruth is in the genealogy of Matthew. Ruth, the Moabite, is the great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ, your Savior. These aren't just three little pages about three insignificant people. They're some of the most important pages in all of the Bible concerning some of the most significant people. See, it reminds us that God has this unfolding plan that we have no idea what is going on. These stories about people, we have no idea. Do you think Ruth had any idea that when she gave birth to a son, Obed, that one day his grandson would be the king of Israel? Probably not. It's likely that she never even heard. She never even lived as long to know that she had a great-grandson named David, much less the chosen king. And yet, Ruth still lives faithfully. I mean, think about it. How many of you can name, by first name, your great-grandparents? Can you list off all the first names of your own great-grandparents? The reality is that your great-grandchildren will probably not know your name either. 
But that doesn't mean that you don't have an important role to play in their lives. Your life of faith will make a huge impact on them whether they know who you are or not. Because guess what? You're influencing their grandparents and their parents. And we see in the story that true greatness doesn't always come from the most significant people. We would look at a person and say, oh, she's just a Moabite. Who cares? Meanwhile, God has something important and significant planned for her. You know, part of life is just sometimes getting up every single day and providing for your family or sitting down and saying, let's reflect on these Bible verses together around the breakfast table. Sometimes life is monotonous. Sometimes life is hard. You have to do more laundry. You have to make more lunches. You've got to cut the grass again. You've got to do those things. Get up and go to work. But, but true greatness is not always so much with the important things, but it's with people who are willing to reflect the character and love of God. See, in this book, we've, we've learned about this powerful idea of said, which is kindness. The Lord providentially unfolds His history according to His unfailing kindness. His abounding, unfailing love guarantees the restoration of Israel in spite of its sin. From famine and death to grain and to life. He plans for their welfare and not for their harm to give them a future and a hope when all seems lost. God rewards those who show unfailing kindness to the weak and helpless within covenant community through His unfailing kindness. We've also learned about the transforming power of redemption. Ruth and Naomi are being transformed by Boaz who steps up and acts in faithfulness to the Word of God even at great risk to himself. We, we see that Boaz acts as the Redeemer. And where does, Naomi, or where does Ruth find herself? She puts herself at the feet of the Redeemer. Have you put yourself at the feet of the Redeemer? This idea of God's redeeming love, it, it gets a hold of someone and it transforms who they are. It makes them something different. Not just a better person, but a different kind of person. You know, In my family, we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about superheroes. Uh, we have lots of uh, Spider-Man masks and Hulk masks and we watch Ninja Turtles and all different kinds of things. And, and a couple of days ago, I was having a conversation with Silas who will be three next month. And he was talking about whether or not he was the green or the blue or the red Hulk. Now, he gets the Hulk sometimes confused with the Ninja Turtles because there's a green and red and blue Ninja Turtle. So he likes to tell me if he's the green or red or blue Hulk. But he was, we were having this conversation about the Hulk. And it got me thinking about the Hulk because when I was growing up, it was one of my favorite characters. And, and, and uh, the Hulk is really this guy, Bruce Banner, who is this uh, introspective, uh, kind of nerdy, brilliant scientist who is exposed to gamma rays when he runs out onto the, this uh, bombing uh, area to save a young boy named Ricky, and he gets exposed to the gamma rays. And so what happens then is when the Hulk gets angry, as you know, his eyes get green and he does this look on his face and all of a sudden he just you know, spreads out in this huge beastly thing that can't control his anger in any way. But it's the gamma rays that essentially make him from Bruce Banner to something altogether different. He is transformed. He becomes something totally different. And you should see what happens in my house when Levi or Silas puts on that Hulk mask. It's the same kind of transformation. You've seen it maybe here in the hallway of the church. They, go, they become something different. You know, we encounter God's grace and His kindness and His redemption. Essentially, we become something different. We're not just a little bit nicer. We don't just try to do the right thing. We become something different. 
You know, what struck, at, what, what struck to me when I was uh, talking with Bill Mathis about his, his funeral, and I shared this at his funeral last week, but he came and I asked him about his faith and where he was, and he said, you know, Matt, when my, when my wife died, I had, up until that point, I had just kind of gone to church. Um, but I realized then that I really needed to know Jesus. And it transformed his life. It made a difference in who he was. He was not the same kind of a person because God's grace had worked inside his heart and had begun to come out. It was a, a transformation. You know, I, I knew this guy at one time that uh, was like a, a guy like most people. I mean, you know, kind of doing what was right in his own eyes. I mean, he just did what everyone else did. You know, your purpose in life is just to make money, to have a good experience, uh, to do the right thing as much as you can, and not really to hurt anybody, but just basically get what you want to get. Now, if you would characterize this guy's life, it was not so much like selfish, I want to have what I want to have, but when it came down to it, this guy's life is really what he was pursuing was to just suffer his own good. He just wanted more money, more influence, more toys, more property. And that's really what everyone else around him wanted. And so it wasn't that different of a life. But this guy began to realize that, that his life was about himself. He was pretty much just thinking about himself. And yeah, he would do a nice deed for a person here and there. But really what he wanted was more for himself. And that guy really began to see that over and over again, that the more he pursued the things that he wanted, the, more, the less satisfied he became. The more discouraged that he became, the more alienated from life he became because he just felt, you know, I, I just I keep getting these things, I keep having these experiences, and none of these experiences really bring me the life that I'm hoping to have, and none of these things give me the, the life that I'm hoping to have, and I really, he really became frustrated with it. Actually really discouraged. And then this guy was invited to go to church um, one day. And it was the day before Memorial Day, 1997. And this guy, Matt Miller, went to church. And he met Jesus 16 years ago, this Sunday. It was like gamma rays going inside. But instead of being transformed into an uh, you know, ugly green guy with purple pants, why is Bruce Banner always wearing purple pants? I don't know. Instead of becoming an angry, ornery guy, he became a guy who was changed by God's grace, who is still being transformed even to this day by God's grace. You know, it's not a graduation, the Christian faith. It's not getting better at something. But it's being transformed by the grace of God. I, I still have all the same ingredients that I did before. The sinfulness, the brokenness, the struggle, the personality, the sense of humor, all those things are the same. But it's been transformed because of God's grace that's been working in my life. And God is continuing to do that. And that's what transformation is. It's not about getting better. It's not about saying, I'm going to get this fixed. It's about experience God's redemption experiencing His covenant loyalty, His kindness, and allowing that to change you and to transform you into being something else. And that's my story. And, that's, and today's my birthday. 16, I'm getting my driver's license today. But I praise God because He's changed me. He is changing me. And He will change me by His grace. Let's pray.